0: Hello and welcome to your monthly fix of great cracking stories from the Dublin Story Slam. The Dublin Story Slam is a monthly open mic storytelling night that takes place in the Sugar Club in the heart of the city. And this podcast celebrates all kinds of stories from ordinary and honorary Dubliners with extraordinary tales. So you're going to hear stories from funny ones and sad ones, to stories that make you want to run out and share them with your friends, to the ones that make you want to curl up and listen to them alone. But the one thing that they've all got in common is that they are true, they are personal, and they're told live on stage at the Dublin Story Slam. This is the Dublin Story Slam podcast. My name is Julian Clancy and I produce the Dublin Story Slam and joining me is the man who is the butter to our bread. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, it is Mr. Colm I can't believe it's not Colm O'Regan. <laughs> yes, uh, great to be here as ever.
0: So on this episode, we are covering the theme of accidental heroes. So this is a time where you find yourself, destiny maybe just throws you out in front of the bus and you manage to push the baby out of the way or save the puppy or or do something that you end up saving the day without any intention uh, of doing so. So we've got three stories uh, from you recorded live at the Dublin Story Slam from different nights. Some of them were winners. Some of them were just really good stories that played alone. Um, but what about you, Cam? Have you ever had a, an accidental hero moment or maybe an accidental villain, actually?
1: I remember being an accidental villain in... Well, here's a story of where I was abroad, but I was in, we were in Malawi and uh, we were on holidays there. I was visiting my aunt who uh, was a nurse there and we also went on holidays as well as visiting her where she worked. But we were on the beach. Malawi is a beautiful country, runs along, huge length of it runs along uh, Lake Malawi. And there's some beautiful beaches along there, as well as, you know, snails that give you life-threatening diseases, but on the beach, you know, real Eden in a way, people herding their cattle uh, to and from the water, um, beautiful light, beautiful sunshine, and there were some children there playing with a football which was made of rags and plastic bags and it was a very makeshift football, the kind of football that you would have if you didn't have a whole lot. So we were there and they invited us to join in their game and because you're on the beach, you know, you kind of jump about a bit and so the ball went up in the air and I decided to impress the locals with an overhead kick and I burst their ball. <laughs> <laughs> I what br- do you mean you burst their I ball? I broke, because it was made of plastic bag and rags sewn together of just like incredible ingenuity but not destined to be hoofed by a Colonial white foot and uh wearing probably hiking boots. No, I was in my I was in my bare feet, Um but I just didn't have the deftness of touch that somebody skillful would have. So I burst their ball, and we had, had been having such a lovely time, but this is what they'd been playing with, and I had just broken it, and the mood changed to one of "You broke our ball, give me money." So I we gave them some money. You can get like it's it's near the rubber plantation, so actually people make rubber balls out of like the tree and uh so they obviously went off to get one of those but i have never felt like such a rotter like to use the enid Blyton term so i never felt so low what a miserable old man i felt to burst the football of these children and uh, so no never an accidental hero so far uh, but accidental villain, yes.
0: Sometimes I think uh, when you go abroad, uh, it seems to bring out the, either the best or the worst in people, and you sometimes be do something that you would normally would never ever do at home.
1: Yeah, just a number of micro decisions that have, that were wrong and, <laughs> and caused you to diverge hugely from the path of cop on. Yeah.
0: Well, our first story uh, on today's episode is from Claire Nevin. Claire tells us a stunning story about going on a trip to Istanbul and it not ending quite the way she imagined it. Um, so, this is Claire Nevin.
1: Give a huge welcome to Claire Nevin. Claire Nevin to the stage. Welcome, Claire. Hi, Claire.
2: Welcome. Uh, So, three years ago, I went to Istanbul to visit a friend of mine. Um, I was living in Cyprus at the time, so it's a very short flight. And he was going back to visit his family, and he asked me, would I come over? So I booked a flight to Istanbul last minute and went over. I went over especially because he'd just broken up with his boyfriend, and he was really down in the dumps. Um, He said, come on over, we'll go out, and I'll show you around. It'll take my mind off things. And so I said, brilliant, you know, Istanbul. I'd seen all the pictures, gorgeous city. And I went, um, and we had a great first day, went around seeing seen sights, um, the mosques, the market, the Grand Bazaar, absolutely beautiful. And that night he said, look, I really just need to get my mind off this breakup, and I'd love to go out. He said, there's this amazing bar, it's like one of Istanbul's biggest gay bars, it's in Taksim Square, it's massive, it's brilliant, let's go. So I said, okay, no problem. Even though I was really tired at this stage, well, since probably three o'clock the night the morning before, but I said I'd go anyway to support him. Um, so we went and so sure enough he met someone and they were dancing with each other and I said okay I'll go and sit down here wait till they're done, hope he doesn't forget me and go off and leave me in the middle of Istanbul. Um, I was having a text conversation over a Google Translate with someone from Lebanon going back and forth between Arabic and English and I said please come back and get me. <laughs> and so anyway the guy who my friend had been dancing with came back and he said oh you're looking for your friend, he's over here so he brought me over and we went home, and that was fine. And the next day, um, we were having dinner, and his phone rang. And it was, it was Mustafa from the night before. He said, it was very nice to meet you and Claire, Borchai. Do you want to go out and see Istanbul? And I said, OK, yeah, if you think it. You know, it'll take your mind off things. Let's go. And Borchai said, yeah, please, let's go. It'll be fun. So we, got in, we went, anyway, to where we we're meant to pick, be picked up. And he said, oh, let's go, and we'll show Claire around Istanbul for the night. So we got into the car. And um, there was somebody we didn't know in the car, and we were driving along, and I remember thinking, I hope we're going where they say we're going. And I could see Taksim Square, and we were going for a drink in Taksim Square, and I was reassured by seeing the signs. And suddenly we weren't going towards Taksim Square anymore. Um, they'd taken a right, and they started winding up this like, a little alleyway with cobblestones, middle of nowhere, no lamps, like Ottoman Istanbul. I said, okay, it's a bit strange. Um... And then they parked the car and he said, oh, I'm just going to let my friend out here and then we'll keep going. And I remember looking behind me, like the alarm bells were ringing and I could see all, just because it was pitch dark, I could see just the cigarette butts, you know, when it's in the dark and you can just see when the person inhales it lighten up. And I could see a bunch of these lights going off with the cigarette butts. I said, oh, fuck, I better get out here. It's <laughs> <laughs> <And> so... <laughs> I said, this is like the film Taken or something. I said, I hope I'm not going down that, lo- that line. And so I went to get out, and then they all converged on the car, and they leapt in, and next minute I could hear, chick, chick. I said, oh shit, right, so, <laughs> about four of them got in, and I asked, my, asked Borchai, like, would he translate, and let me know what they were saying, and they were saying, like, that, you know, he deserved to die because he was gay, I deserved to die because I was his friend, guilty by association, and there was a lot of aggro, and you know they had the guns held up to us and everything. And I was I actually was really calm, though. Honestly, I know I, it's a scenario an you where like, geez, I'd piss myself. But actually, when you're in this scenario, you don't know how you're going to react. You really don't. So I just was like, okay, right. Uh, heart was pounding, but I was calm enough. And so then it was almost very business like. Like they wanted our money, they wanted our jewellery and everything. And so they wanted to get the code for our bank cards. And we wrote down some numbers on a piece of paper and they went away. And Borja said, You gave them the right code, didn't you? I said, No, I didn't. Of course, I didn't. <laughs> and he said, Claire, like, just after telling me that if we didn't give the right code, they're going to shoot both of us when they came back. <laughs> and I said, Now is maybe not the time to be the stubborn the little bastards. Like, I had 15 euro on my card at this stage as well. It wasn't, no, but it wasn't the 15 euro, it was the principal the principal they weren't getting my 15 euro and so i said what oh, she's come back and i said considering the circumstances i got a little bit confused so there you are like there's the right code knock yourselves out enjoy the 15 euro and then this like kind of long way to send it and i actually was like right this is going to end soon one way or the other i don't know how this is going to end but then it was awful because i started to actually think like they might actually kill me i was 23 and i said oh, I'm so stupid, like, I'm about to die at 23 because I was this tr- trusting kind of Egypt. And then I said, I really wish, like, that all those years of Catholic education hadn't put me off religion. Like, I really need someone here, like, to just pray to or something. Like, geez, I have nobody. And I was thinking, like, please, will someone help me, please? I don't care who it is, like, it's not know, Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, <laughs> Santa Claus, anyone, help me, help me, please. I'm not joking, as soon as I actually asked for help, this police van started coming down. Like, we were in the middle of nowhere here. Police van started winding down. I said, Right, we need to get out of here now. And I kind of nudged Borchai and I said, I was in the middle of the passenger seat. So I was wedged between a gunman and Borchai. And I said, We need to get out of here. Borchai said, No, I'm not going. They're going to shoot us. They're going to shoot us anyway. Like, we have to try. <laughs> and um, then the guy beside me, he realised I was trying to orchestrate the great escape. And so he kind of started pulling at me and yanking at me, and I got great strength. I just punched and punched and punched. And the police van was going by, and I managed to get a hand free. He was—I was all twisted and contorted—and I put my hand out and I opened the door and I slammed it. Timed it so it slammed into the police van as the police van was going by.
3: <laughs>
2: Thanks. <laughs> and then. We jumped out and there was like shots firing in the air, like the police were obviously trying to stun them. And Borch jumped into the police van because he said, it's a logical thing to do. No, but I was angry. So I started running along down the alleyways of Istanbul with the police shouting, you little bastard, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and the police were like, go back, go back. And we kept running and running and running. And eventually they got him anyway and they handcuffed him. And then we were brought to the prison that night like, to testify and say what had happened, and we were brought to the hospital to see were we okay. And the police brought us in to a little room afterwards and did all these Facebook profiles of who they thought it was going to be. He said, "Is it this guy or this guy or this guy?" Because they'd only caught one of them, you see, there was about four involved. And I was like, "Yeah, it was him. it was him, It was him." And then the policeman said, like, ",This is one of Istanbul's I think he even said Istanbul's top criminal gang." He said, like, "We've been looking for these guys for years." I was like, I've only been here 24 hours. <laughs> they're like, do your, do your jobs. Like, I mean, call me if you need a hand next time, no problem. <laughs> and uh, eventually they did actually get the three others in the months uh, past. Um, I think they're serving like 24 years now. So I don't know, want to know what they did before. Um, so, yeah, very, very lucky to have escaped that one. Um, and, yeah, sometimes, like, you know, there's sometimes I'd have fears now or different things, but I think the problem's not having the fear. It's, like, just kind of going forward and trying to deal with them. And when I was leaving Istanbul... Uh, how am I doing? Where am I? Am I at the end? You're the the Perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Um, at the very end of the two days... I was going back to get on my plane to go back to Cyprus, and I was passing through like the the emigration, immigra- and I handed my passport, and he saw my name. The policeman, and he goes Nevin. Apparently, Nevin. My last name is Nevin, Claire Nevin, and he said that's a Turkish. He started speaking to me in Turkish. I was like what? And he said Turkish name. You're Turkish. And I said no, I'm not Turkish. No. And he said it's it's apparently it's a Turkish surname, and and um. First name. And so I said, Well, what are Nevin people like? Because you know, the way everybody knows, oh, these, the Nevins are like this, the Rileys are like this. I presumed it'd be like Ireland that they'd have an idea of Nevin people. <laughs> and so I was like, What are the Nevins like? And he said, Nevin people, happy people, lucky people. I said, You're dead, right? <laughs>
0: that was Claire Nevin who won the story slam uh, on the night. Uh, Claire works for Frontline Defenders which is uh, an agency that basically protects human rights defenders all around the world and she is soon going to be moving to Geneva but will be coming back to Dublin at the end of the year to take part uh, in our grand slam but come um, what a what a, what a brilliant story
1: that was. That was one of the ones where the tension in the room was incredible. We were hanging on every word but at the same time she was telling it as if sure this is the kind of stuff I get into like she wasn't she wasn't telling it as if somebody was reading a Raymond Chandler book you know it was she was like everybody's friend is how she, we all have a friend like claire but what would happen if that friend that really nice person you know called claire ends up in the midst of a crime situation in Istanbul And the fact that it's Istanbul and that has such resonance in kind of cinema as well, too. uh, Like, if you read this in fiction, you'd go, oh, this is one of those classic, you know, plucky girl detective ends up like Nancy Drew style things. Would that happen? It does happen. Um, It happens as well, of course, because Claire is a very brave person in her work and what she does for a living anyway. But the those minutes those seven or eight minutes as we were we were there in that car with her it 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 happens in the story slam where you just get transported. To a place, and not only that, but we were being transported in the back of the taxi with her, uh, or in the back of the car with her.
0: It's like you, you, you see the person on stage. You know that it ended well. You know that they escaped, but it doesn't matter because you're still like so tense and kind of saying, "Oh my God, is she going to get out of here? Are they going to escape?" So it just, yeah, it it always blows me away how such a simple thing as telling a story can still become this big cinematic kind of experience, and also that
1: where she doesn't give them the numbers of her ATM. <laughs> and I was trying to think at the time, what would I do? And I think I might do the same thing, because yeah. whenever I picture myself... But it, it was like, only, about
0: 15 euros that was in the yeah, event? I'm not
1: letting them have my money for I that. Not, let them have my, <laughs> you know, my student plus account uh, remnants. Uh, and But it is that kind of silly thing you do, because for some reason our fight, our flight mechanism or a mechanism for self-preservation hasn't evolved enough to go just give them the money you know sometimes people do know what to do and just give them the money and other times you think you might foolishly try to fight back or or trick them but it was it was a situation where I definitely wouldn't have been as brave as her I definitely would have done something stupid in that situation
0: We look forward to hearing uh, another story from Claire when she takes part in our Grand Slam that's going to happen at the end of this year. I mean, we should say for anybody who hasn't been to the Story Slam, the way it works is that there are judges in the audience that we just choose in advance, uh, three teams usually. I think we've had anywhere from like two people in a team to maybe nine, was it, I think, at one stage. So they're scattered around the audience. And at the end of each story, judges give individual scores. And then we tally up those scores to to choose an overall winner uh, at the end. The end of the night, and then those winners go on to take part in our grand slam, which last year took place in the Abbey Theatre. So we're, we're super excited to um, we'll bring in news about that when 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 we get it ASAP.
1: It also took place in the Abbey Theatre during uh, a vacant slot in the run of Let the Right One In. So yes. the Abbey Theatre was covered a in winter fake snow, wonderland, a swimming pool board, uh, diving set board set up. Yeah and white birch trees. trees Yeah. so it was coincidentally a magical setting to tell and hear stories on to our next uh, story um,
0: it's kind of uh, the complete opposite of way in Karen in Evans' story it's a bravery but it's a very maybe a, a small uh, bravery as opposed to a big epic life endangering one although I'm saying that I'm actually thinking no this guy could have been hurt
1: well as somebody who's done crap gigs I think it is <laughs> Extremely brave.
0: This is a story from Donald Sharpson, and the theme of the night was heroes and villains.
1: Give a huge welcome to Donald Sharpson. Donald Sharpson. Donald. Donal. come on. Welcome, Donald.
4: So, uh, I'm from Drumcondra. I'm basically, I had a friend, and she was going out with a guy for five years. And uh, he broke her heart, broke up with her. And she was crying, you know, we met up the next day, and she was still crying. And she said, um, oh, you know, I just, I can't, I, I don't know how, what I'm going to do, I can't go on and And I said, look, if you need anything, just give me a shout. You know, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> because little did I know what she had in store for me. So this is a story where I'm kind of the hero, but I'm definitely the villain, right? So the next day she rings me and I go that's a surprise okay she rings me and she goes hey uh, hey 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 I was like hey hey what's up she goes do you know the way you said yesterday that you would do anything for me and I said yes and she goes um well I organise children's parties yeah and basically I have a party going on but Peter Parker who was meant to be doing a party got too drunk last night and can't do it so I said, really? That's very interesting. And she said, would you mind dressing up as Spider-Man and going to this party? And I said, I've never done anything like it. I don't think i will do it. But she said, oh, but you, you said you'd do anything for me. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll do that. So um, she came down to the gaff. Uh, she gave me a bag with the costume. Uh, I should have checked what was in the back, because let me tell you, it's the worst Spider-Man costume I've ever seen. I didn't find that out until later, but anyway. Uh, so I go, Where, where's the party? She goes, Dorset Street. I said, that's strange. Uh, what is it? She goes, it's a, it's a communion. I was like, is is the kid 40? What's happening? And she goes, no, no, it's a communion, you know, eight-year-old kid is having a communion in a pub in Dorset Street. I said, oh, right, oh, 2016, whatever, you know. Uh, so... You know, I put on my Peter Parker glasses, I get my bag, you know, I'm getting excited, I'm going down and thinking of all these funny quips I could do and all. Uh, so I go into the pub and Dorset um, First of all, the windows are blacked out. Uh, so I open up the door. Uh, second thing I notice, there, there's, uh, there's no kids. There's about four guys having pints there at the bar. So I think, oh, that's very strange. So I go up to the bartender and I go, um, where are the kids? <laughs> and he says something even stranger he goes oh they're out in the alley (laughs) I should have known then to just go home but I didn't right so I say okay I'm going to get changed so go into the bathroom I step in (laughs) piss all over the floor right I think oh lovely and next thing I notice is there's no lock on the bathroom door so I'm like oh fuck exactly oh Jesus right so I go in I, I take out the costume it's a terrible costume. There's holes everywhere. You could see the back of my head. There was no back. You could see my T-shirt. And there was no shoes, so I was just wearing Converse. <laughs> Spider-Man doesn't wear Converse, but whatever. So I'm getting my costume on really awkwardly. I have to put them on my jeans because it's, it's very revealing. So putting them on, I get the mask, and the mask slips and falls in my hand. and lands goes. But I'm thinking, I really want this 20 euro that she promised me for doing this party, so... I go down, I pick up the mask, and I put it over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so I go, I uh, see the lads uh, having their points, going, heavy lads, how are you getting on, you know? Uh, and I go out to the alley, where the children are. And... uh I burst out the door. I'm like, yo, yo, hey, hey, it's me, a Spider-Man. Don't mind me. I've got no gloves and shoes, but whatever. Whoa. Don't mind the stain on my face. Hey, yeah. And the kids all stopped from their... Whatever they were doing, probably beating each other up. I don't know what kids do these days. And they look at me, and they're like, you're not Spider-Man. I was like, hey, what are you talking about? Hey, yeah. And they go, hey, Spider-Man is not that fat. I was like, whoa. Hey, man, yeah, it's, you know... So uh, the kids, they start to hassle me, you know, they start bullying. And one of the kids comes up to me and he's like, you're not Spider-Man. I go, I am Spider-Man. He goes, oh, yeah. Punches me right in my penis, I swear to God. So I'm like, you little green goblin, yeah. And they all start to circle around me and start kicking me, you know. It's like getting beaten up by the sinister six-year-olds. I'm there, pissing my face, getting kicked up by children, you know? So I'm like, yo, Mary Jane won't be too happy about this. Hey, uh... Now, luckily, the bartender comes out, and he's like, there's food inside. And they go, yeah, we'll be back for you later, Spider-Man. Don't you move. I'm like, I'm getting fucking out of here. So all the kids run, so I'm like, this is my chance. So I leg it into the pub. They're all feasting on sweets, whatever you do. I run past and I go into the jacks and they go, hey, fat Spider-Man's have to run to the jacks. <laughs> so they come in there, right? I'm trying to get changed. The door's swinging as usual. So I'm holding the door, trying to take off my mask and there's piss everywhere. I drop the whole costume in there. I throw him back. And they start banging on the door. They're like, hey, where's fat Spider-Man? Look, like, oh, he, he's that. EJ, he, he's gone. He's gone. Like, where is he? He ran crying The little. So... So eventually the bartender comes in he's like, what are you guys doing here? Get out, get out, get out. And I was like, oh, thank you so much. You were my fucking hero, right? So I go out and there's the ma who's organized this whole thing, right? And uh, she goes, what what the fuck was that? That was shit. She's like, I'm after organizing Elsa. She hasn't shown up. Olaf is after getting hammered at the bar. And I got a fat Spider-Man covered in piss. What the hell's going on? Uh, and at that moment, I realized, like, with great power comes great responsibility, right? <laughs> but I felt so powerless that I realized I had no responsibility. <laughs> and so I ran away.
1: <laughs> so, thanks, guys, for listening. It. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Donald Sharpson, ladies and gentlemen. As somebody who has done the odd gig for children, both odd in the occasion sense of occasion and odd in sense of strange I empathise fully with his experiences. Not as bad as that and definitely not with a face covered in piss. That is something that is probably the extra pissy icing on the cake, on the miserable cake uh, for Donal. Okay, so our last story of the night comes from a
0: story slam regular Catherine Brophy. And Catherine has been telling stories from day one from uh, when we were the moth and right up until uh, we've become the Dublin Story Slam. And she is, you just know you're going for a good time when when you hear back because she tells stories, sometimes they're rooted in our past, in in our childhood and in a more innocent time, like this particular story. But other times uh, about her trips all around the world, uh, like the times she went to Armenia when she went to monitor and a, a local election that was there. So I just love Catherine's, uh, her life experiences. They're so
1: interesting. And she has both the life experiences and incredible memory because she has so many stories from her childhood and the de- it's the detail of those stories that make them the little jewels that we hear on stage when she turns up. So here is Catherine Brophy. I give a huge welcome to... Catherine Brophy. Ladies and gentlemen, Catherine Brophy. Catherine. It's coming from there. Oh, I'll give you that you.
3: My mother was brought up in poverty, but um, a previous generation had been very wealthy, so she was left with notions of grandeur. And amongst the notions were the idea that we were definitely a cut above buttermilk. And also, she had a very sophisticated and refined notion of what was common and what was vulgar. The unfortunate thing was that every single thing that I liked, such as chips from a chipper, uh, things, with glitter- things that were glittery, things that were frilly, patent leather shoes, um, comics, and the colour red were definitely <laughs> vulgar and common. <laughs> And when I used to beg for a red coat or a red dress, she would say to me that red was a fine colour for a rose, but that a lady wore blue, like our lady, or green, the colour of nature. And after that, it was any colour you like of beige, fawn, cream, grey, or navy. Anyway... This particular summer, I was about eight, I think, and she decided to send me down to Bruna Mee for my holidays. Me was this Gaelic um, college in Meath, which was basically uh, set up in several wooden huts. But as I was leaving on the bus, she said to me, Now Catherine said, I want you to be a good girl while you're there and always remember who you are which I thought was the strangest kind of thing to say to anybody, because, I mean, how could I possibly forget who I was? (laughs) Anyway, off I went down to Brunamee, and I was thrilled to bits with myself because I had been reading a lot of comics, all unbeknownst to my mother, because I used to get them from the girl next door, hide them under the mattress, and read them under the blankets with a torch at night. These comics told stories of fabulous... Uh, ancient schools in England which are called things like Greyfriars where um, the girls had midnight feasts and they played hockey and lacrosse and the French teacher was always nasty and the sports teacher was always lovely and there was always a princess a foreign princess used to go home to her castle in the Dolomites during the halls and I really, really, really wanted to go to a school like that but Brunamy was the nearest I could come to it (laughs) So, um, but anyway, it had a swing, a fabulous swing, and we slept in bunk beds, which I thought were thrillingly fabulous. Um, The washing facilities were, even I, at the age of eight, knew they weren't quite up to scratch, Uh, but we uh, learned to sing songs like ging-gang-gooly-gooly-gooly-gooly-wash-wash. So I had a fabulous time. I came back home, and I was dying to tell my mother all the fabulous stories about the time I had in Mee. And whatever about my mother's snobbishness, she was always wanted to listen to us, and she usually would sit you down in the kitchen and you'd tell her what happened. But this time, she was completely preoccupied because the house was full of strangers. And the strangers turned out to be my Aunt Mary Jo from America and her three children. And I was hoping, oh, maybe I have cousins that would be the same age as me that I can play with, but that didn't really work out. Because the eldest one was Jimmy, who was tall... And handsome and he'd a crew cut and he wore this thrillingly thin tie, which I knew was so fabulous it had to be common. And he used to pal around with an older cousin. And the next one was Celia, and she was kind of rather pretty, kind of with candy floss, blonde hair. But she was old enough to sit with the women. You know, the women have, they have these colloquing where um, they, they sort of drop their voices when the children come around and sort of there's nods and winks. On. She was able to join in that. And the youngest one was Roberta, Bobby, who was pretty and had honey blonde curls. And she was a little bitch. She whined and pouted and gave out yards and screamed until she got her way. And then I was told that I had to look after her. And every single thing that I wanted to play with, she wanted. Every game I wanted to play, she didn't want to play. And we had this wooden uh, rocking horse that my father had made out out of leftover bits of wood. And she would insist that I rock her on this. And she would go on and on. And if I stopped, she would scream and scream and scream until an adult came out and, you know, sorted it all out. And eventually my mother took me aside and she said, look, they'll be going home soon. Just put up with it and don't bother about it. So I did. But then my anger with my cousin was reduced slightly when my aunt produced this gift for me. It was a huge box, big cardboard box, and I opened it up and it was full of tissue paper and I knew that anything that came in tissue paper had to be fabulous. When I opened the tissue paper, there it was, the American dress. And it was red. Hooray! (laughs) I was thrilled out of my mind. So the next Sunday when all the aunts and uncles came around, I wore the American dress. It had a beautiful big wide sash with a big bow at the back and big puffy sleeves. And the skirt, oh my God, the skirt. It was layers and layers of orange and and, and red and purpley, sort of all, all the shades all shifting around. And when you twirled, the skirt went right out the way a skirt should. So I spent a lot of time in the garden just twirling around. <laughs> Thrilled with my... And as I was there twirling around, I completely forgot who I was. And suddenly I became Belinda, the princess, who went to Greyfriars, who played lacrosse and hockey, who had midnight feasts, and who went to the castle. There was a fabulous castle I lived in in the Dolomites. It had turrets and, f- and uh, flags and all sorts of things. But in the middle of this fabulous dream, this child came up and she wanted to be rocked on the rocking horse. But suddenly I realised Belinda would never put up with that. <laughs> and I turned around her and I said, twerp, rock yourself. <laughs> and she did. And eventually I got dizzy and I fell on the grass and as I was lying there, it suddenly dawned on me that my mother was not always right, and she was definitely wrong about red. Red was not the colour of sin as I had always thought it was. It was the colour of power.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Then, Catherine Brophy, ladies and gentlemen.
0: That was Catherine Brophy who is a regular uh, storyteller at the Dublin Story Slam and uh, Catherine, you can go to her website catherinebrophy.ie She was a script writer for Fair City for for nine seasons and she's got four books to her name and she has these amazing stories uh, from her time as an audiologist also travelling around the world Uh, so we look forward to sharing some more stories uh, from Catherine but uh, a particular brand of uh, storytelling magic there, Colin.
1: Yeah. And the picture she painted of her cousin, it reminded me of, I don't know if many people remember uh, Violet Elizabeth from the Just William books. It was what we were all reading 30 years ago. It was long before Harry Potter. People were reading Enid Blyton and Richmond Crompton. But that I'll scream and scream and scream until I'm sick uh, was what that cousin reminded me of. And it's the hallmark of her skill as a storyteller the way she picks on that small moment from the past and that object from the past and how it made her feel. And anybody who has ever lusted after a thing as a child, you know, a toy or a coat or uh, a pair of Wellingtons. Because when you're small, no matter how wealthy or poor you grew up, there was always one object that you wanted, you know, that item of clothing especially. Um, I still remember... Uh, my first pair of jeans and my first hoodie. Like I got them years after the world got jeans and hoodies. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember I had a pair of jeans and a pair of white runners at the same time. Mm. And I don't know what age I was, like 10, like because I'm, you know, a child of the early 80s. Yeah, Trousers in the 80s would be extremely fashionable (laughs) now because they were... Like I wore like plaid and checky trousers in the early 80s. You know, uh, there wasn't, that, I didn't have that many jeans. That's so the region
0: in, in Dripsy or this is on the streets of Cork
1: City? This is on the way to and from mass and school. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much it. Um, and then they brought in school uniforms in school. So I remember going to school before the uniforms and um, it was open season on, on the great jumpers of the 80s and the great trousers of the 80s. So I know how Catherine feels about that about an item of clothing and just want, want, want as they say now
0: Well if you have a particular story about maybe a, a, a random piece of clothing or an object uh, or anything really about your life uh, we'd love to hear from you so visit uh, the thedublinstorieslam.com for more information and to learn how to sign up uh, when their next theme is and where you can get tickets um, Just email us the first line of your story and we usually pick four uh, names the first four uh, that were, that we pre-sign up on the night so that means that you definitely get to tell your story and then we pick four more names at random uh, on the night itself so uh, the Storieslam.com is the best place uh, to start your own little journey uh, into storytelling our thanks as always to the wonderful storytellers who, who got up there and shared uh, their own uh, stories and uh, we will see you at the next podcast thanks for listening thank
1: you